calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. You are listening to episode 29 of Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Chapter 74, Greenfield's Orbital, July 8, 2373. Five engineers applied for the post in the first 24 hours. I was surprised to find five unemployed engineering chiefs on Greenfields. I was even more surprised when six more applied the following day. I carved the pool down to the three who looked like they had the right level of expertise and set up interviews for them. I had Ms. Arione meet each of them at the lock and escort them back to engineering. I talked to them. I watched them move about the engineering space. I asked clever questions like, How many engineers in your family? And do you have any hobbies? None of them appeared to notice the smell from the scrubber filters that were slowly growing sour. At the end of the day, I didn't hire any of them and went back to my pool of candidates. Captain? Miss Maloney stood at the cabin door as I pondered my next selection. Yes, Miss Maloney? Could we maybe change out one or two of the filters? Just until the next candidates come aboard, sir? She had a wry smile. It's getting a bit whiffy in here. I huffed out a short laugh the first hint of a thaw in the ice around my brain. Yes, Miss Maloney. You'd have thought one of those engineers might have spotted it, wouldn't you? Maybe they just think we stink, Captain. She smiled as she said it. That's possible, I suppose. I considered it. I hadn't actually asked them if they'd noticed anything wrong. What I had mistaken for ignorance could have been simple politeness. I wondered if I wanted a polite engineer. "'Dinner will be ready at 1800, Captain,' she said softly, and she closed the door and left me to my screen. "'We'd just about settled down to eat when the klaxon buzzed into our silence. "'I'll get it,' Ms. Arione said, and headed for the ladder. "'We heard the lock open and low voices echoed up through the open atrium. "'After a short conversation, we heard the lock close and two sets of boots coming up the ladder. "'Captain,' she said, as she stepped onto the deck, "'Chief Stevens to see you.' I stood at the sound of her voice and turned to greet the newcomer. Even bald as an egg, the woman looked about seventy. The wrinkles across her face framed a pair of sparkling brown eyes that darted from one thing to another as she entered the galley. I thought they looked like laugh lines when Miss Arione introduced me. Her warm smile confirmed my guess as her face took on a nearly beatific aura. When I saw her, I recognized her from somewhere, but I couldn't place where. 
She stopped just inside the galley's door, standing not quite at attention, but somehow ready, and I recognized the stance. When I did, I remembered where I'd last seen her. Chief Stevens, I said, and placed my hands together in front of my chest in a stylized interlocking pattern that I had earned the right to use while at the academy. I bowed deeply, not as captain to chief, but as student to master. She folded her own hands into the corresponding pattern and bowed in return, equal to equal. Captain Wong. She placed a slight emphasis on the title. It was Port Numar, wasn't it, Chief? I smiled and offered a hand. She took my hand in both of hers and shook it firmly. Indeed, Captain, and look how far you've come. She smiled around the galley. Chief Margaret Stevens, may I introduce you to Spec 1 Chef Christine Maloney? Miss Maloney, Chief Stevens. The two women shook, and I could see the recognition in the chief's eyes. You're Jeff's daughter, aren't you, Miss Maloney? Yes. Did you know my father? The chief shook her head. Only by name and reputation, Miss Maloney. I was sorry to hear of your loss. He represented the working spacer well in the committee, and his voice will be missed. Thank you, sir. It's lovely to meet you, Miss Maloney. Chief, this is Spec 1 ship handler Stacy Arioni. Miss Arioni, Chief Stevens. Chief? Miss Arioni said, offering a hand. The chief took Miss Arioni's hand in both of hers and smiled. Miss Arioni. As they stepped apart, I asked, So, chief, what brings you to our humble home? She turned back to me, and her eyebrows wagged in a way that made her face dance with humor. Business, captain, and not a moment too soon, if my nose is any judge. She wrinkled her nose once to emphasize her point. Sorry about that, where... My voice caught in my throat for a moment, but I managed to recover without too much embarrassment. We're in the process of hiring a new engineer. Yes, I know. I saw your posting. She nodded once. I thought I should like to come see how Cadet Ishmael Wong turned out, and see if perhaps I wanted to sail again. You, Chief? I must have looked somewhat incredulous. You'd be interested in sailing with us? My head reeled from the very notion. She tossed back her head and laughed. Why not, Captain? Do you think I'm too old? Her eyes sparkled and danced at my discomfort. Well, certainly not, Chief. It's just, well, I thought you'd have your choice of billets. You could work wherever you want. She nodded quite eagerly in agreement. Indeed I could, and I frequently do. She looked around at Miss Arione and Miss Maloney. I've done a bit of work around. When you get to my age, people are sometimes fooled into thinking you know something. I laughed. Yes, well, Chief, I don't know about fooled, but... I don't understand. How are you even here? Well, this is my home, Captain. I've been visiting the great greats, delightful children, but so tiring. I've had my eye open for likely-looking birth for a while now. When I saw your posting, I thought I'd like to come by and see for myself before I applied. Would you like the birth, Chief? She gave a small smile and a coy shrug. Well, I don't know yet, Captain. I'm not done looking. She wrinkled her nose. Perhaps I could see your environmental section. I led her back to engineering while the crew resumed their interrupted meal. I could see the chief looking the ship over as we went. Quite unabashed in her inspection, she made no bones about looking at the state of the decks, the conditions of the seals as we went through the airtight door at the end of the passageway, and even the wear on the threads of the ladder going down to engineering. She looked like a bird hopping from bright object to bright object, subjecting each to brief, intense scrutiny before moving on. When we got to the main console, she ran a hand across the back of the chair and looked around, jocularity gone from her face, but still smiling pleasantly, her gaze darting from corner to overhead, from fusactor to grav generator, as she surveyed the domain. Her eyes locked on the scrubbers, and she crossed to the unit, placing a hand on the cover as if to gauge its temperature. 
She looked at me over her shoulder. May I, Captain? Well, of course, Chief. In seconds she had the case open and her bird-like gaze raked through the interior workings, her nose and eyes working hard even as she folded her hands behind the small of her back. She stepped back and nodded once, turning on her heel, hands still clasped behind her. Spares? I nodded toward the spares locker. This way. I led her into the locker and she surveyed the bins and boxes with a critical eye before stopping at the filter cartridges. Shall we fix it now, or were you hoping to interview more engineers? She asked with a grin that crinkled her entire face. I smiled back. I couldn't help it. She was that kind of elemental force. I think my engineer has found me, I told her. We should probably fix it so we can begin airing out the ship before the passengers start coming aboard. She snaked two filters out of the bin and tossed them to me before I finished speaking. I caught them as she grabbed two more and scurried back to the scrubber. I dropped my two on the deck beside the unit and went back to grab a trash tote. I got back with it just as she pulled the first of the oldest filters from the rack, drawing the heavy, sodden mass easily with one hand and easing it neatly into the tote without slopping a drop of scrubber slime. She saw me looking at her in obvious admiration. What, you think I'm old and weak? Her voice teased as much as chided. Not at all. I can't change one of these things without getting slime all over me, the deck, the unit, and everything in a three-meter radius. She laughed again. Watch and learn, my boy. Watch and learn. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Chapter 75. Greenfields Orbital. July 9, 2373. With a couple extra days in port, I took a look at the cargo priorities and reran some of my models. The analysis kept me from thinking about Greta, but also gave me some interesting ideas about routing. Greenfields, in particular, served as a kind of secondary hub for the quadrant. Diurnia had two Confederation hubs, Diurnia and Dre. Typically, when the Confederation establishes a second port in a quadrant, they situate them some distance apart to provide focus for commercial activity around the quadrant. For most cargo ships, Diurnia and Dre were adjacent ports, 
which left the largest part of the quadrant a long way out. The Greenfields orbital appeared to have developed into a de facto hub. It was the most distant developed system from Diurnia, and Greenfields Corporation manufactured consumer goods. As a result, Greenfields required a lot of imports for raw materials and food. Their factories occupied orbital platforms, and planetary development consisted of some mining for rare earths and precious metals, small farming operations, and habitation. The digitals I'd seen of it showed an attractive, low-population planet that was a long way from primitive. A few fast packets serviced the area, but generally passage to Diurnia took the form of a slow series of jumps around the string of systems that made up the quadrant. As nearly as I could tell, nobody took the double or triple jump through the deep dark that would cut months off the Diurnia run for cargo ship. I found that curious and filed it away for future reference. My analysis led me to focus on Diurnia, and I picked up a priority shipment of communications parts that nearly filled the holds in a matter of stands. The passenger list filled nearly as quickly. Within half a day of getting Chief Stevens settled aboard, we had all we needed to leave Greenfields. Ms. Maloney and Ms. Arione took care of sorting out Greta's personal effects. At one point, Ms. Arione found me in the cabin and asked, Skipper, we're about to pack up Chief Gearhart's things. Would you like to see if there's anything you might like to hold on to? She smiled gently, if somewhat tentatively. My brain screamed at the thought, but something in my heart made me get up and follow her down the passage to crew berthing. The extra grav trunk took up a lot of the floor space. The closed top held a variety of trinkets, some small tools, her pocket flash. I started to reach for the flashlight when I spotted a rough figure carved in wood. The Welkie had the shape of a seabird, perhaps a petrel or some other slender-winged gull. It wasn't a bird I recognized offhand, and the rough style provided few details beyond the general sense of identity. I picked it up and rolled it in the light, watching the overheads glint off the rich purple of the heart-shell inlay that gave the carvings their name. The tears came again then, blurring my sight, rolling down my face. Thank you, Miss Arione, I said, when my voice would respond. I'll take this, if I may. She shrugged and nodded. I wrapped my fingers around the bird, feeling the sharp edges of the wood, the points of the bill and wings pressing against my skin. I turned and left, walking forward toward the cabin, but climbing the ladder to the bridge instead. The harsh reflected light of the orbital cast deep shadows in the tiny bridge, but the armor glass gave me a view aft, out through the bustling traffic and into the depths of the sparkling darkness beyond. Standing there, gazing into the eternal night, holding the welkie I had not known she had, I knew the sapphire daggers of her eyes had scarred me and that I'd carry those scars for the rest of my life. Staring out into the void, tears making it impossible to see anything clearly for any length of time, turning the ocean of stars into a rippling sea of lights against the black, something my mother used to say came back to me. Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all, I murmured to myself. Growing up, that had always seemed like such an empty, sour grapes kind of thing. As a callow, romantic youth, I couldn't imagine how it might be that having your heart ripped out by losing a love might be better than sidestepping the problem in the first place. I remembered arguing with her about it one afternoon over coffee. She had smiled that irritating smile she had and said only, Someday. I smiled as I remembered how much I hated that smile. Standing there... Decades later, the raw wound gaping figuratively in my chest, I stared out into the cold, dark future and realized that someday had come.
Unbidden, my hand reached into the pocket of my shipsuit and pulled out my dolphin. The oils from my hand had stained it, burnishing it a deep nutty color that looked black in the darkness. I held it up and turned it back and forth beside the seabird, the lights glinting from each polished heart. Sarah Krug once told me that Welkies knew where they needed to go, that they had to be given, but they had power to guide and protect. I pondered that as the salt tracks dried and tightened on my face. I slumped a dolphin back into my pocket and picked my way down the ladder. In the cabin, I placed the seabird on the console near my keyboard and went to the head to wash up. Cargo would be coming aboard, and shortly thereafter, passengers. I needed to be ready. The timing was tight. Cargo wranglers showed up at ten hundred and were still putting the final cubes aboard as the first of the passengers arrived, a pair of business types, a woman and her assistant. I welcomed them aboard and stood with them just inside the main lock, out of the path of the rushing cargo handlers. The woman, Melanie MacArthur, watched with some interest as the handlers skated the massive cubes into the hold and locked them down in a tightly choreographed dance that reminded me of the ants I used to watch as a boy, laden carriers coming in one line and empty ones going out another. The assistant, Sandra Wrangle, looked irritated at the delay, dissatisfaction over having to stand in the lock written plainly on her face. I wondered if Miss Wrangle thought it might be her duty to look irritated on her employer's behalf. Sorry for the delay, ladies, I told them as the last of the cargo handlers trundled off the ship and I thumbed the receipt. I found it fascinating, Captain, Miss MacArthur said with a smile. She had a rich, throaty voice, and I liked her immediately. I helped them maneuver their luggage onto the lift and keyed the hydraulics. Miss Wrangle started as the deck rose beneath her, but Miss MacArthur beamed in delight. Miss Maloney waited on the upper deck, and I left our passengers to her capable hands while I secured the main lock, cutting off the flow of frigid air from the docks. Within a stand, all the passengers had come aboard for the run to Diurnia, and I sealed the lock for departure just before lunch. Lunch mess looked nearly ready to serve as the chrono clicked up to noon. Miss Maloney strode into the galley and proceeded to do just that. The passengers... Two couples, the Kilpatricks and the Usagis, and a father-son pair, the Bryants, trickled onto the galley. Ms. Arione herded the loose pack from behind, and we got them seated by the time Ms. Maloney had luncheon on the table. I surveyed our party and felt proud of myself for keeping my face in an expression that I hoped was pleasantly neutral. Chief Stevens sat to my right, Ms. Arione to my left, with Ms. Maloney beyond her. The passengers all sat around the far end of the table in seats that would, no doubt, be permanent for the duration of the voyage. We'd seen it often enough. Chief Stevens smiled at me pleasantly, and I found myself smiling back at her. She was only a little older than my mother would have been, but there was something inherently grandmotherly about her. Ms. MacArthur seemed sociable, nodding around to the newcomers, but Ms. Wrangle kept her expression closed, pretending to attend to her boss. The two couples, both some indeterminate age between forty and sixty, seemed pleasant enough. Mr. Bryant, the senior, likewise seemed pleasant, but his son appeared by turns intensely curious, incredibly bored, and just a bit angry. When they checked aboard, his father had asked to stow two extra grav trunks of the son's goods in cargo. Taking him to school, he'd said, pride ringing in his voice. You don't really need to escort me, you know? His son responded in what sounded like a long-standing argument. Of course not, Joshua, but it's something I want to do. I haven't seen the place since I graduated, and I'd like to get back, renew my old memories. He smiled fondly at the boy. When you've got kids of your own, you'll see. He turned to me. He's going to Duncan, he explained. Duncan Institute of Management on Diurnia? 
I nodded in a manner that I hoped was appreciative. Excellent school, I understand. I had no idea personally, but he obviously thought so. I was in no position to argue. We stowed the trunks in the cargo hold, and I sent them up to find their compartment. With that background, the son's near petulance seemed understandable. He kept giving Miss Arione small glances out of the corner of his eye, and I admired his ambition, if not his judgment. Miss Maloney served a soup, salad, and sandwich luncheon, with a delightful cobbler and ice cream for dessert. Miss Wrangle declined the soup at first. Vegetarian, I'm afraid. She looked at Miss Maloney with something like a challenge. Miss Maloney smiled. Not to worry. It's a meatless minestrone with my own vegetable stock. Please, enjoy. Miss MacArthur arched an eyebrow at her protege, who flushed under the scrutiny and said no more. She finished the soup and had several slices of Miss Maloney's crusty bread. At the end of the meal, she didn't look quite so angry. When I caught Miss Maloney's eye, she gave me a wink and a small nod. I gave her a smile in acknowledgment and toasted her with my mug. As the meal worked its way toward conclusion, the group seemed to loosen up a bit. Miss Maloney did a spectacular job of breaking the ice, performing the introductions, and generally keeping the conversation moving. Knowing my pattern, she turned to me during one of the final lulls, and I raised my mug to the table, which brought residual conversation to an end. All eyes turned to me. Welcome aboard, I said. Thanks for joining us. We're looking forward to a safe and speedy voyage to Diurnia. I caught each of them by the eyes briefly and smiled. Miss Maloney is our chef and chief steward. You've already seen her in action. Miss Arione will be assisting me in sailing the ship from here to there. Chief Stevens is in charge of the engineering department, which includes environmental. If any of us can make your voyage more pleasant, please don't hesitate to ask. I paused, and most of them smiled around to the various members of the crew. I have a ritual that I follow before getting underway, and I'm happy to share it with you. I turned to the chief. Chief Stevens, are we tanked on water and fuel? Yes, Captain. She replied without a hitch. Water, fuel, and maneuvering volatiles are all tanked up and ready. How about spares? Our spares closet is fully stocked, Captain. What's the status of the major machinery, Chief? Fuse actors are on hot standby, ready for changeover from station power. Impulse engines are warming and will be hot in time for pullout. Sail generators are secured and safetyed in accordance with CPJCT regulation. Thank you, Chief. Is the ship ready for space? Yes, sir. Engineering reports the ship is ready for space. Ms. Maloney... Are we stocked on food and supplies? We are, Captain. Full lockers and stocked freezer. We've food enough to last and more. Is the ship ready for space, Ms. Maloney? Steward reports the ship is ready for space, sir. I smiled as she followed the lead set by Chief Stevens, even as I wondered at the theater we created for ourselves and the benefit of the passengers. Ms. Arione, is the deck division ready? Yes, Captain. Cargo is secured. Passengers aboard. Deck division is ready for space. I turned to them and announced. I've personally loaded the astrogation updates and laid in our plot for Diurnia. We have food, fuel, and are ready for space. I'll call navigation stations at 1430 and we'll get underway at 1500. I'd ask that passengers stay in their compartments during maneuvering and suggest that your bunks would be a good place to rest. We don't typically have much of a bump, but should something odd happen, that's as safe a place as you'll find aboard. When you hear the announcement to secure from navigation stations, you're free to move about the ship as you will. That should happen around 15.30. I looked around the table and smiled again. Are there any questions? The general's shrugs and head wags indicated there were none. I rose just as the chrono clicked up to 1,300. Thank you, then. I've got some chores to attend to. I'll see you at dinner. I took my empties to the washer to demonstrate for the passengers. Chief Stevens followed me and Miss Arione behind her. 
We have plenty of time, Miss Maloney said to the passengers, who looked around uncertainly. Please, stay, have some more dessert, if you like, while we put the final details together for getting underway. When we got to the passageway, Chief Stevens smiled and patted my shoulder. Where would you like me for navigation detail, Captain? Well, it's your call, Chief. Engineering, bridge, galley, if you want. I grinned at her. Bridge, then, she said. I love seeing where we're going. I nodded and headed for the ladder to the bridge while she headed for engineering. Miss Arione followed me up the ladder to the bridge, but took one of the extra seats while I took the piloting console to double-check the course plot. Will you need me at the lock, Skipper? Her voice seemed a bit tentative. No, Miss Arione, you're our ship handler. You need to be sitting in the hot seat. She smiled then and looked relieved, but I think she tried not to show it. I locked down the plot, fed the course into the AI, and sat back. There was still about a stand before I needed to call the crew to stations, so I stood up and stretched. I'm going to take a walk about, Miss Arione. Don't leave without me. She looked startled until she realized I was joking. She gave me a jaunty, aye, aye, no leaving without the captain, sir, and I headed down the ladder. Miss Maloney was getting the passengers settled into their compartments. She saw me standing at the foot of the bridge ladder and gave me a smile before taking an extra pillow to the Usagis. I took myself down the ladder to the main deck and did a quick walk around the lock, making sure both doors were sealed. I realized there was plenty of room for Tai Chi there in the atrium. I wondered if Chief Stevens still practiced, but then I realized she must, just based on the way she moved. Just the idea of getting back into the discipline made a knot in my back unwind a bit. I walked down the narrow aisle between the cubes of cargo and slipped into the back door of engineering, making sure to seal and dog the airtight door behind me after entering. In the engine room, I found the chief looking at the readouts at the portside auxiliary. She smiled in my direction when she noticed me and jumped down from the observation stand beside the engine. She was quite a woman, wasn't she, Captain? Your engineer? I nodded and was surprised that I didn't need to fight quite so hard to keep my composure. She was, Chief. She certainly was. The chief looked about the engine room and nodded slowly before looking back to me, her eyes warm. She patted me on the arm without saying a word. She just smiled. I'll see you on the bridge, Chief. She nodded, and I climbed the ladder that took me to the aft end of the passageway and made my way slowly to the bridge. The compartment doors were all closed, and I could hear muffled voices behind some of them. When I passed the galley, the smell of fresh coffee wafted out, and I detoured to grab a cup before heading to the bridge. Ms. Maloney had just finished stowing something in the cooler and straightened when I entered. Fresh coffee, Captain. Thank you, Ms. Maloney. I could smell it in the passageway. It smells great. I thought you might like it. I grabbed a mug from the rack and filled it at the urn. I stood for a moment, my backside against the counter. Are you okay, Captain? Ms. Maloney stood leaning back against the sink, arms folded. I gave a sideways nod and took a sip. I will be, I think. I still feel hollow. I miss her too, she said. Her face turned hard. Jarvis will pay for this. You think it was him? She gave me a level look. Once is accident, twice coincidence, she said. I finished it for her. Three times is enemy action. She nodded firmly, but her face softened. I can't believe the chief got involved in this, though. Even seeing the photos he took, having him lying there on the deck, dead. She shook her head. He was one of my bodyguards for so many years. One? She shrugged. There were a couple of them that swap in and out. Her mouth flattened into a thin line. I can't even begin to say how betrayed I feel right now. I'm sure. I'm even nervous about the passengers, but we have a choice.
We can live in fear or not. She snorted a bitter laugh. I'm pretty fearful right now. I grinned at her and took another sip. Me too. The question really is, what do we do about it? What do you mean, Captain? How real is the danger? What's the probability that one of these passengers works for Jarvis and will kill us in our sleep? While underway? I nodded. Not very high, she admitted, unless they've got a way to get off the ship. That's my assessment, too. I think that's why Herring made his move on the orbital and not aboard. It still seems pretty backwards to me, Captain. Maybe, but he had help, and as far as he knew, we were undefended. The chief never took Miserioni seriously. It was only luck that his plan didn't work, and it almost did. If he'd been a few centimeters deeper, or I hadn't turned when I did, he'd have killed me. Where would that have left your standing in probate? She looked alarmed at that. I don't know, Captain. Me either. I'm just glad he didn't use a standoff weapon or something simpler like poison in the coffee. I took another deliberate sip and saw alarm grow on Ms. Maloney's face. How would we protect ourselves against that? I think we would die, Ms. Maloney. The alternative is to put ourselves in a cage and not to let anybody in. If it keeps us alive, Captain, isn't it worth it? I think, even if the door is locked on the inside, it's still a prison, Ms. Maloney. I cast a glance at the chrono, turned to top up my mug. But right now, we need to get this ship moving. I left the galley and made my way up to the bridge, settling in the captain's raised chair. Ms. Arione was already at the pilot's console, and I could see she had her screens up and messages drafted and ready for transmission. You've got time to get a cup of coffee, Ms. Arione. She looked over her shoulder at me with a lopsided grin. I'm good for now, Skipper. Well, then, make the announcement, Ms. Arione. Navigation stations, if you please. She looked surprised by the change, but clicked the announcer on, and I could hear her voice echoing up the ladder. In a few ticks, the chief trotted up and took her place at the engineering console, firing up the electronics and running through some diagnostics before settling on the ship's status display. Are we ready, chief? Oh, we're ready, captain. Request departure clearance, Miss Arione. Aye, aye, captain, requesting departure clearance. Her fingers clicked a couple of keys, and we waited. In less than a tick, the response came back. We have clearance to depart, captain. Pull the docking clamps, if you would, Chief. Aye, aye, Captain. Undocking now. Her fingers moved across her keyboard, and I could see the locking ring status change from green to amber to red. We are unlocked, Captain. Umbilicals have withdrawn. I turned to make a formal eyeball survey astern and gave the command. Take us out, Miss Arione. She gave the maneuvering thrusters a tap, and we slipped back gently. I watched the skin of the orbital retreating into the distance and felt the confusing illusion that the orbital was backing away from us. I stared at it, knowing she was gone already, that there was nothing of her there besides the physical remains of her body awaiting shipment to her father. In spite of that sure knowledge, I couldn't help feeling that I was leaving her, and my breath caught in my throat for a heartbeat. I took a deep breath and let it out slowly. It simply wouldn't do for the captain to be crying on the bridge. In my head, I said, Goodbye and turned my chair to look aft, watching for traffic, but seeing only sapphire-studded smiles. Chapter 76 Greenfield System, July 13, 2373 We were four days out of Greenfields, and the ship had settled into a nice rhythm. Ms. Arione and I could have covered the bridge with 12 and 12, but the reality was we really didn't need to. 
During the day, we kept the repeater from the bridge running in the galley. Between the four of the crew, somebody was always there to keep an eye on things. I kept a pilot's console slave to my tablet and could run the ship from wherever I happened to be. As Greta had pointed out, I didn't really need to see out the ports. I did make it a point to spend some time on the bridge during the afternoon and early evening. Miss Arione usually put in a stint in the mornings. The passengers didn't seem bothered, or perhaps they just didn't realize when there was nobody on the bridge. Miss Maloney did her usual bang-up job in keeping them happy. She dispensed food, drink, and entertainment on demand, as well as serving what might have been the best food in the quadrant during meals. I admired her ability to turn out interesting menus day after day from the same basic pantry. Chief Stevens was a blessing. Not only did she write the book on engineering, quite literally, since Port Newmar still used her textbook for engineering classes, but she had a patience, a calmness, and a wry sense of humor that I found quite soothing. Of all the things she did for the ship, she did something more important for me. She joined me at Tai Chi. The vestibule just inside the lock and outside the cargo hold proper might have provided extra cargo space, but it lacked the proper tie-downs for cube storage. As such, the open deck made an excellent space to practice Tai Chi. The decking gave good footing, the openness left room to move freely, the high overhead made the space feel airy. I made good on my promise to myself and started doing a bit of Tai Chi after breakfast our first day out of Greenfield. It felt good to be moving again, and I regretted not starting as soon as I had taken over the ship. For a little while each day, I focused on the movements, on my balance, on my body without thinking about Greta. My technique was rocky at first. There were some places in the routine that slipped my grasp, and I had to work to remember them. But when the chief started joining me for a stand or so each morning, my practice improved greatly. She smiled over at me while she warmed up with some stretching. You know, Sifu Numar thought you had great potential, Captain. Well, give me a few more decades and we'll see if she's right. She grinned. Well, I'd bet you're the only one in your class with your own company, Captain. That's rather impressive. I considered that while I changed my movements to twist my torso gently. The careful movements pulled my injured side, but with each passing day I felt myself healing a little more. With a nod, we finished our warm-up and stood side by side for the first routine a woo long form. As the slow, even movement spooled out, I lost myself in the grace. Even the often awkward Four Corners movement took on the character of a dance as we slid from stance to stance, our steps in sync, our breathing matched. In my mind, I felt the warmth of the spring sun streaming through the windows of Sifu Numar's studio. When school was in session, sometimes some of the faculty would join her class. More rarely, a fellow cadet would join us, usually to round out some other art's requirement for exploration. Spring was my favorite time at Port Newmar. The cold grip of winter loosened slowly, as if begrudging the inevitable blossoming of the planet. Eventually, there came a point where winter ended and spring began, and the welcome warmth of the spring sun on our bodies as we practiced our forms promised much. As the gardens quickened, we moved our practices outside, often working the soil and tending the grounds. In the pale greens of spring, I only spent my allotted time with Sifu Numar in the gardens. Studies and drills took up most waking moments. At the end of each semester, I had a window of opportunity with few demands on my time. With finals over and summer cruises not yet begun, I found a halcyon early summer period of as much as ten standard days where I could practice from sunup to sundown if I desired. During the early summer of my junior year, Chief Stevens joined our practice one morning. 
Sifu Numar's students often returned to study with her. It never ceased to amaze me that officers with ships, careers, and even families would interrupt their lives to make the pilgrimage to Port Numar. Some were old, some young. Chief Stevens was the first whose name I recognized, but I suspected that I stood in the garden or studio and sweated beside a veritable who's who of spacer officers. I recognized Chief Stevens' name because I had just finished reading her text. In spite of my upbringing around college faculty, or more likely because of it, I remember being figuratively clubbed between the eyes with awe when I realized who the woman beside me was. I smiled at the memory of our younger selves as we brought the routine to a close. I was in such awe of you, I said. I remember. Why did you go back? What, to see Margaret? she asked. She rubbed her cheeks with the palms of her hands. I was between. I needed to get away, to think. She cast me a calculating glance as she said it. Between? Between what? She laughed. Husbands, children, jobs. I think when I met you I just finished the fourth edition of my book and finalized the divorce from my third husband. My kids were grown and the company I worked for got sold. It seemed like a good time to go back and brush up on my technique, to say nothing of my mental health. I could see her eyes roll up toward the overhead as she thought about it. That was the second time, I think. I looked at her in astonishment. Really? How often have you been back? Oh, I don't know. Four? Five? I think five. I must have had an incredulous look on my face. What? she asked. Think of it as therapy. A few weeks with Margaret Newmar always set me back on my feet, smack in the middle of the earth. She waved her hand as if showing a fly. Now, are we going to talk all day, or are we going to do some Tai Chi? Okay. Wu Long again? Well, works for me. We worked through another round, and with each movement I found myself immersed more and more in the memories of my time at the academy, particularly the time I spent in the studio. As we made the final bow and straightened, I remembered a comment Sifu Numar made about another of her visitors. I couldn't remember which semester, but it was winter, and we were inside. I'd entered for my training session just as one of her ex-students was leaving. He was somebody important, a distinguished gentleman who had a large company with several ships and even sat on the CPJCT committee on something or other. As he left, she sighed and looked after him for a moment. Then she turned back to me. He had such potential, she'd said, and we started a series of Jung long forms back to back. What are you thinking, Captain? The chief broke the stillness that surrounded us after a particularly good set. About Sifu Numar and potential, I told her. I heard her breath huff out in a short laugh. Me too. After a pause, she suggested, One more woo, then I'll be ready for the showers. In response, I took the opening stance, and we slid easily through the steps. When we finished, we bowed to each other and climbed the ladder to the first deck. My legs felt just a bit rubbery, which meant I'd done a good level of workout, and I was pleased with how the forms were progressing. At the top of the ladder, the chief gave a little wave as I stopped at the cabin and she continued down the passage to her compartment on the other end. I glanced into the galley and found Miss Maloney entertaining Miss MacArthur and the female half of the Kilpatricks. She smiled at me over their heads when she saw me looking and I gave her a wave before ducking into the cabin. On my way past the console, my eyes caught the rough-hewn lines of Greta's seabird Welkie. I picked it up and ran a thumb across the surface, feeling the texture of the rough cuts and sharp points. The light glinted off the polished shell heart, and I admired it briefly before placing it back by the display. It made me think about the packet I had tucked in the bottom of my grav trunk. 
I hadn't looked at them in ages. Thanks for listening to Owner's Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the solar clipper. Music is Larry O'Gaff, a traditional tune performed by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad and is used with permission of the artists. You can find this and other works by Ragtime Larry and Tom Joad on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation of Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution No Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 U.S. License. For more information about the book, the author, and the golden age of the Solar Clipper, visit www.solarclipper.com. 